Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Missio podcast. Um, I am excited to be sharing with you the beginning of this series that we're entering into called The Way of Jesus. And so, as most of you know, we have the vision for this year of 2022 that we are spending the year understanding what life with Jesus looks like. And so we are starting with a bunch of just different kind of series that are going to help us dig into what that looks like, feels like, and then help us begin to practice that vision of life with Jesus. And so there's a partner church of ours in the Tri-Cities called Divine Church, where Sarah and Micah Reasonweber are the pastors. And they just wrapped up a series called The Way of Jesus. And so I thought it would be a great uh, way for us to start our year of life with Jesus. And so I called up Micah, their pastor, and I just asked him if we could use the structure of their series to kick off our year of life with Jesus together. And so he was excited for us to be able to utilize it and use it. And so these first eight uh, weeks of this life with Jesus are going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus and then specific examples of how then Jesus lived out those teachings. Because I think there is a way that we often look at Jesus and his teachings in scripture that I think is a bit unfortunate. I was reading a book, I started a book last week by Sky Jatani called What If Jesus Was Serious? And in the book, he talks about how he was teaching a class on the Sermon on the Mount to some people at his church, and he asked them to raise their hands if they believed that Jesus actually meant for us to live out the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that no one raised their hands, and which surprised him, and so he started asking why. And several people mentioned that they believed the Sermon on the Mount was taught not as an actual thing for people to live out, but as an example of how the standard of Jesus is actually too high for anyone to live. And so we all need to give one another grace because none of us can reach it. And the question that Sky asked is, do we really believe Jesus didn't expect us to live out his teachings? You see, the problem with this way of thinking is that Jesus didn't just teach things and then leave us with no way to understand what it actually looks like to live those things out. In fact, so much of the Sermon on the Mount expects that you and I will get things wrong along the way, that we aren't where Jesus wants us to be, but that because of Jesus with us, we will continually live a life of becoming those things. And so, no, Jesus didn't say things and then teach things knowing that we can never actually do those things. He taught these things knowing that we could never get there on our own, and so he wants to be invited into life with us so that we, he can help us get there. And so again, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at several teachings of Jesus and then looking at examples from his life that demonstrate how he lives that teaching out, which means that we're going to be jumping a little bit around in scripture. But what we're trying to discover all year is that life with Jesus will ultimately change us to look more like Jesus. I mean, what's that saying about marriage? You live long enough, with, long enough with someone, you start to act like them, right? And it's the same with Jesus. The more we discover life with Jesus, the more we find ourselves becoming like him, which is our goal for our year. And so this week we are looking at the way of humility. And so I just want to start by asking this question. When you think of humility... What and who comes to mind for you? I think we all have people that, that we can think of that exude this idea of humility. 
But let me ask you another question. You know, at the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he has these Beatitudes, and one of those Beatitudes is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But this word meek is not something that we tend to use very much in our world. So what does meek mean to you? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It implies this idea of humility and gentleness and mild-manneredness. Why do you think Jesus says that the humble, the gentle, and the mild then will inherit the earth? Think about how our world typically views inheriting the earth. How does that happen? Typically through war or fighting or contention or just doing it on our own. Being stronger than everyone else. Force, whatever it is. And yet Jesus, in his most famous and comprehensive teaching, in two ways, describes what would have sounded like the most absurd idea to people at that time and remains absurd to this day. He says, first, blessed are the poor in spirit, which seems odd to us because we don't use that term poor in spirit very often, but it it just basically means that there was an understanding of our need for God. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was, again, an acknowledgement that life with Jesus begins with admitting that we need Jesus. And then he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And so twice, Jesus makes an absurd and bold claim for the importance of the way of humility that leads to the kingdom of heaven and peace on earth. And these are certainly big, bold claims that would have been challenging for people to wrap their minds around. And so Jesus goes on to explain several more times throughout Matthew this idea of humility being the way of Jesus that leads to peace on earth, leads to a very real, tangible expression of God's kingdom on earth. Because Jesus knew that as humans, we would always struggle with wanting and seeking greatness, even at times at the expense of everyone around us. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1, and it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, there's that question. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Jesus, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And this is interesting to me because even after hearing Jesus teach several times on this kingdom value of humility, I mean, he just did the Sermon on the Mount where he's saying poor in spirit, meek and all this. His own disciples wanted what every human in history has struggled with. See, the disciples knew that Jesus was ushering in this new kingdom of heaven, and and the disciples wanted to know, hey, who is going to be the greatest in that kingdom? (laughs) And this is the craziest thing about humans to me. We almost always are most curious about forging a sense of greatness for ourselves. And so Jesus, he answers his disciples' question in this moment by teaching them about the way of humility. So he has this child come over to him and he says, you see this child? Unless you become like him, you won't need to worry about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because you won't even be there. I mean, that sounds pretty harsh though, right? 
I mean, he, he says, if you don't change and become like this child, then you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. You can't be because the kingdom of heaven is fundamentally about humility and gentleness and peace. And peace, real peace, never happens at the tip of a sword and fighting for greatness. It comes with an acknowledgement that we are not the greatest, but the one who is the greatest has invited us into his kingdom. And so accepting the invitation from the one who is the greatest takes an act of humility on our part. And so Jesus says, whoever humbles themselves like this child, they're actually the ones who are the greatest. Now, I, I know some kids. I have, I have four of them myself. And so the question that I was wondering is, what could Jesus possibly be saying regarding becoming like children to become the greatest? You know, there is a dependence that kids have on their parents to survive. In order for kids to live well, they have to trust and rely on and be completely under the care and provision of their parents. And so I love this analogy because all over the Gospels, Jesus sees the people in life who through coercion and force and abuse and manipulation and so much more seek to gain control of the world or at least their little portion of it. And yet he says that kind of forceful inheritance will always leave you empty-handed because it only leads to pain and suffering. You know, it's always fascinating to me when I watch movies about people who take over like a company or a country or whatever it is that they're taking over through things like force or manipulation or war and fighting. Have you noticed that they always live in constant fear of then also being taken over by somebody else, of losing that position of power? Like they are constantly looking over their shoulder for the next person to stab them in the back and take their place. I mean, what, what a miserable way to live. Always suspecting that the people around you are out to take the thing that you have already taken from those people. And to me, isn't it interesting that the way that people who have tried to take their portion of the earth, and even times, at, even at times forcefully taking their portion of God's kingdom, are the quickest to point out humility as a weakness rather than a strength. There is this great scene in the first Jumanji movie with Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart. And so not the, the earlier first uh, Jumanji movie with Robin Williams, but the first of the new uh, series of Jumanji movies. And so Kevin Hart's character is learning about his strengths and weaknesses. And so they can touch their chest and out, out pops this kind of visual that shows them their strengths and their weaknesses. And so Kevin Hart's character sees that his strength is, you know, zoology or backpack guy or whatever it is. And then in the weaknesses category, he sees that strength is his weakness. <laughs> and I love this because he's like, how can strength be my weakness? Which is a question that the world constantly asks. But in the kingdom of the king, this upside down kingdom, strength like what we see in our world, things like manipulation and coercion and fighting and war, abuse, whatever it is that gets people ahead is actually a weakness. And weakness in the kingdom of God is our strength. I mean, it's all quite backwards, really. When Jesus answers Paul's plea to remove his thorn in the flesh, Jesus says to him in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
And it wasn't as if Jesus was saying, I don't want you to become strong in life. Like, don't lift weights. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's our weakness, that our weakness then is an opportunity for Jesus to show his desire to be with us in that weakness and provide the thing that we can't get on our own. To be the thing that we are missing in our life. It's Jesus' longing to fill the gaps of your character and his presence so that together you and Jesus become one. Because Jesus makes you whole. I mean, isn't that amazing? That with Jesus, we are whole. We are complete. But not only are we made complete with Jesus, the work of Jesus is made complete in us. And so in 1 John, Jesus says that when you love one another, then God lives in you and his love is made complete in you. See, Jesus has so intimately tied himself to humanity that his love is made complete when it is formed and living in us and being extended through us to the world around us. And that's amazing to me. Jesus has chosen that in order for his work to be made complete, he needs us to receive him with us. But he says none of that's going to happen without humility. Because humility is understanding and admitting that if we are made complete with Jesus, then it means that we are incomplete without him. You know, we've mentioned it before that a baby will not live if they are not constantly with, being held, touched, talked to by their parents or their guardians. And this imagery is exactly what Jesus is after when he says the greatest among you is not who you think. The greatest is the person who fully realizes, accepts, and admits that without Jesus, I am simply incomplete. And so I long to be made complete with Jesus. You know, but the way of humility is so hard though, isn't it? And yet Jesus didn't tell us to be like little children, knowing that none of us ever could or would. And so Jesus goes a little bit deeper than his teaching and his examples, and he begins to show them in action what this way of humility looks like. And so if you're, if you're following along in your Bibles, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. And this chapter is so great because once again, Jesus' disciples are asking him if they can sit at the right and left hand of God, which I mean... Is there a more bold and arrogant request to make? Jesus answers his disciples by basically saying, you guys honestly must be crazy. Those spots that the left and right hand of God are not only not mine to give, but they have already been reserved. So, no, you can't have those. He then goes on to describe the nature of the world at his time, which incidentally mirrors exactly how our world works today. And so he says in chapter 10, verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying to his disciples, look, that question, that question you just asked, can we sit at the right and left hand of God? That is so backwards. See, James and John apparently wanted to have the right and left seats by God so they could somehow rule as co-leaders of the created world. But Jesus says that is how the rulers and people in control look to rule. 
They want to rule from the top down. But he says, in my kingdom, this new reality that is being ushered into existence in the midst of the already broken reality of the world is fundamentally about the posture of humility, the way of the servant. He says, even I, the son of God, who was at the right hand of God, gave that all up to be a servant of all. Jump back into Mark chapter 10, but look back at verse 13. This is now this moment when Jesus would show them what living into the way of humility would look like. And so it says, starting in verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And so this laying, this idea of laying on of hands was so important, especially from someone as religiously and spiritually significant as Jesus. You know, even today, people put their babies before people like the Pope in hopes that he will lay his hands on them and bless them. And so the disciples are seeing this, and immediately they jump to action because in their minds, this was an interruption to this moment where where Jesus is surrounded by this huge crowd of people and the people are asking him all sorts of things. And so the disciples are, are seeing these families come in with their kids, wanting him to touch them. And the disciples' concern was that this interruption would be perceived by Jesus as wrong and a detriment to what he was there to achieve, which to the disciples, they thought was to impart wisdom and teaching and knowledge to the people. And this moment is so beautiful because Jesus has already said that the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven and that the meek will inherit the earth. And here comes the most innocent of all people, these little children, their parents longing for Jesus just to touch their kids. And Jesus sees and hears what the disciples are doing, basically shaming the families for interrupting the, what is their thought, the more important work of Jesus. And then Jesus says, in annoyance, which is what indignant means. So he is annoyed with his disciples in this moment. But he says to them, stop. Let those kids come to me. See, because the most important thing in that moment was not for Jesus to have an uninterrupted time to answer questions, but rather to be present with a handful of children so they could experience the closeness of his presence with them. We, we, we so often see interruptions in our lives as rude or annoying and causing us to be unable to keep focus. And sometimes, sometimes they are. But it's how we respond to the interruption that is most important. Do we respond with this authoritative demand for peace to go away? Or do we respond in humility, receiving the interruption as a, potentially, as a potential opportunity for nearness, for presence with someone? And now, no, of course, not all interruptions are meant as an opportunity to do what Jesus did in that moment. In fact, there are moments, there were moments when Jesus' intention and mission were interrupted and it caused him to rebuke those things. When he goes to the temple to find that people are using the place of worship as a market, he sees this as an interruption to the purpose of worship and prayer and he drives them out. He rebukes them. But often Jesus approaches interruptions with humility. 
seeking to find how he could draw people deeper to himself through it. And so in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is going somewhere private to pray and a massive crowd follows him interrupting his silence and solitude. And Jesus sees them and has compassion on them and begins to heal their sick. There is a level of humility and gentleness it takes to respond to these kinds of moments the way that Jesus did. And Jesus' humility and gentleness ultimately moves him to a place of seeing people and then having compassion on them. You know, which we're going to talk about next week, actually. We're going to talk about the way of compassion next week. But what is so neat is in this one moment, Jesus showed his disciples what gentleness, humility, and dependence look like all through the interaction with children. Life with Jesus begins with an acknowledgement, a willingness to admit in humility of our in, incompleteness apart from Jesus, that we need Jesus in order to be whole. And I believe it also means that we approach our schedules and lives with a broad sense of humility because when we do that, then every interruption along the way can be turned into an opportunity to discover how to be a person of presence with people. And so that's week number one, guys. This, that's the way of humility. It's, again, about acknowledging our need for Jesus to make us complete and about approaching our lives with the same sense of humility and gentleness that Jesus did that seeks to be a person of peace, a person of gentleness for the good of the people around us. Thank you for being a part of our uh, teaching this week, and we will see you Sunday at the Nexus Hotel for uh, The Way of Compassion. Bye, everyone.